Hey guys, it's Kim from Not Your Normal Horror Podcast. I'm here to tell you about the Anchor app, which is what I use to produce my podcast. It could not be any simpler. Coming from somebody who never had anything to do with podcasts before, this app does everything for you. Um, the most important part, it's free. doesn't cost a dime and you can make content to your heart's desire. Any amount of podcast you want to make, there's no limit. You do it and that's done. Uh, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. I use my phone because I'm brand new to this and don't have podcasting equipment yet, but eventually I will and I will probably still use my phone because the Anchor app is just that easy. Uh, they will also distribute your podcast for you. It can be heard on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Basically, anywhere podcasts are available, Anchor will distribute it for you. Nothing for you to do except for sit back and, and watch it grow. Watch your listeners grow. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is pretty cool. Um, I just started this as a hobby and now I can make money from it. It's basically just everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Um, you don't have to go here, there, all over the place to get your podcast out. You record it, you edit it, you submit it, and it's out into the world for everyone to hear. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and start your own podcast. It couldn't be simpler. Again, that's the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. guys welcome back to not your normal horror i'm your host kim and tonight's co-host is the one the only stand in for kevin lee music 81 on tiktok i stand in for no one <laughs> it's jay it's jay <laughs> hey when i asked kevin if he could podcast this week he said i can't this week but i've got this guy named jay who will who's my stand in? Get in touch with him, and I'm like, I'll try, see what happens. So I mean, I think I'm owed a cardboard cutout or something <laughs> of myself at least. It's the you're, least y'all could do. You're here. Oof. Why? Okay, I get it. Anyways, so how you doing, babe? I'm good, babe. How's how you life? That's uh, that's life. It's great. It's we're doing great. Um, love it. Love it. So tonight. Since Jay's the co-host, that means it's true crime, but tonight's going to be a little bit different. Well, a little different. Instead of discussing one crime, one major crime, um, we're going to list the 10 strangest unsolved mysteries. Now, it's not a top 10. It's we're not, just We're yes. just going to do the 10 that we think are the strangest. Correct. We're not ranking them. They're just, they're, they're not, not in any kind of order. Um, and we don't know, like, he doesn't know what's on my list. I don't know what's on his list. Stop looking at my so list. So, 
what we're going to do is, you know, whoever goes first, if I say mine and he happens to have that on his list as well, we'll just discuss it together. We'll talk about it. You know, it's a podcast. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. So, um, did you want to go ahead and kick it off with your first mystery? I'll go ahead and kick it off. And uh, this one I chose, it was kind of interesting. It is the unsolved, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, the unsolved Hinterkaifeck murders. (laughs) Okay. Yes. It's German, so. Not on my list. Okay. I know I've heard about it, but it's not on my list. so So you're taking the lead on this one. So we'll talk about it. On the evening of March 31st, 1922, on Hinterkaifeck Farm in Bavaria, Germany, six residents were murdered with a pickaxe. The victims included husband and wife Andreas and Kazelia Gruber, their widowed daughter Victoria Gabriel, Victoria's children Kazelia and Joseph, and the family's maid Maria Baumgartner. Two-year-old Joseph was killed in his crib and Maria was killed in her bed while the rest of the family was then murdered in the barn and stacked on top of each other. Oh, God. Yes, stacked on top of one another. Upon the discovery, authorities concluded that the murderer actually lived on the farm for six days after they had committed the crime. That's just rude. It is. It's like, I'm going to kill you, and then I'm just going to live in your abode. I'm going to eat your food and, like, use your shit. When was this? What year was this? This was in 1922. Okay, so we know it wasn't, like, using up their, you know, internet data and no. shit like that. But still, it's still fucking rude. True. So even after the family had died, the cattle were still being fed. So at least he was taking care oh, of the animals. Yeah. I mean, so... They had that going for them. Yeah, that was nice. Meals were being eaten in the kitchen. Neighbors reported smoke coming from the chimney. And the family's dog was tied to a post when the mailman came on Saturday. Wow. The bodies were then discovered the next day. What makes this crime even more chilling was that Maria was actually hired the same day. Maria was the maid. Right. She was hired the same day that she was killed, replacing the previous maid who had quit six months earlier due to the house being haunted. Oh. Yes. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So, she had reported to the family that she heard footsteps in the attic and voices. Around the time the previous maid had quit, the Gruber family had also begun to hear voices from the attic. Andreas had also noticed a set of house keys that have gone missing, an unfamiliar newspaper in the house that he had never seen before, and scratches on the family's tool shed like someone had tried to pick the lock. Time to get the fuck out of there. It is time to get the fuck out of there. I mean, weird shit. I wasn't stuck around. Nope. He had also reported seeing a pair of unfamiliar footsteps leading from the woods towards the back entrance of the house. Bye. I'm out. <laughs> Despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found, and the files were closed in 1955, and the house was demolished. So the file was closed as unsolved. They closed it as unsolved, which, if it's unsolved, it should, it's, still, be open. It should still be open, exactly. It's a hell of a cold case, but it should oh, still be open. 33 years until they finally closed it. It's definitely a cold case, but... 
I mean, unless somebody wants to reopen it as a cold case, I guess. Um, that was 1922? 1922, almost 100 years ago. Damn. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. Just yeah. found that interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of that. That I've history. never heard of it. I just don't. I didn't. I didn't know they were stacked up in the barn. That's creepy as fuck. Stacked them up. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, the first one on my list is the Black Dahlia murder. I don't have that. You don't have. I that. don't have that. So I probably knew you were going to pick it. Oh, you don't, don't act like you know I me. know you. <laughs> so, on January 15th, 1947, the body of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, was found in Los Angeles, California. It was cut in half and so pale and drained of blood that the woman who found her thought it was a discarded mannequin. Like, she didn't, she, she walked up on it and she wasn't like, oh, a dead body. She's like, mm. oh, wow, look at this mannequin. Yeah, I remember, I remember um, stories. The body was dissected, like, at the abdomen. With, like, surgical precision. Yeah. Somebody, definitely somebody with surgical knowledge. Absolutely. There was no injury done to any internal organs or the bones. Her face was actually cut ear to ear. So, like, well, from her mouth to her ears. Like a joker smile. Yeah, so she had, like, a permanent creepy smile. Like Like a killer, like a weird clown joker. Oh, God, all clowns are weird. Um, she, there was no blood found on the ground near her, so it was believed that she was moved after she was killed. Well, so obviously, obviously, she wasn't killed there because well, yeah. somebody getting cut in half, there's gonna be blood. And, um, although there were many suspects named, authorities have never been able to nail down the actual killer. So, to this day... They should be looking for a doctor. Somebody with surgical yeah, I mean, skills. They did, but nobody has ever been definitively named... The Black Dahlia killer. It's crazy. I mean, some people do get away with murder, yep. and it's absolutely do. Yeah. I don't think they'll ever find the killer. Nope. All right. Who's <coughs> that next, or what do you got next? The disturbing death of Alicia Lamb. That's on my list too. I knew it and would no, be. And it's funny. It's the next one on my list. Serially. Serially. Wow. So let's talk about her. Let's talk about that. On January 26, 2013, 21-year-old Canadian tourist Alicia Lamb checked into the Cecil Hotel. It's Alisa, not Alicia. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Alisa Lamb checked into the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Now, anybody that has seen, uh, oh, what was that? The Cecil Hotel. That was on? That, on Netflix. The, the four, it was a four-episode documentary. No, the show, um, oh, American Horror Story. Wasn't that on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but anyway, enough about that. When she never checked out on February 1st, nor had any contact with her parents, the Los Angeles Police Department was contacted. On February 19th, 18 days from the last time she was seen, Alyssa Lamb's body was found floating and naked in a water tank on the roof of the Cecil Hotel. Her body was found due to hotel guests complaining about the hotel's water pressure. And then the one couple complained that the water was black and yes, tasted funny. That's like that bleh. makes me want to. It throw makes me want to hurl it's right awful. now. That's gross. Um, I think the the most chilling aspect of this mystery is the surveillance video. Yes, from the elevator. From yes, the hotel. that's what like. I, the first time I saw that, I remember getting, like, my body covered in goosebumps because it was so creepy like, I, to watch. When I watched it and she's, like, looking, I, I'm waiting for somebody yeah. to come into the elevator. Yeah. And, I'm and like, but nobody ever 
came into the elevator. No, and it was like she was like standing outside of it and doing all these hand motions. Yeah. And, like, like she was legit talking to somebody. And you're just sitting there waiting for somebody to eventually walk past the, the elevator door and nobody ever does. <laughs> and the weirdest thing was the fact that she got in the elevator, the door opened, she got in the elevator, she pushed all these buttons, and then it just stayed there. It didn't move. Then. But like when I was mentioning the documentary on Netflix, it, they found out that she had actually pushed the... Because when she leaves the elevator finally... Like, a second after that, the door finally closes. And it's mm. like, well, that's odd timing. But what people, I guess, figured out, because they, like, people legit went to the hotel and went into that elevator and, like, looked at the buttons. And then they matched up what buttons she had been pushing to what buttons were on there. It turns out she had pushed the door open button. So, I guess, in that hotel, maybe it kept the door open for however long she was really in there. Because the other problem is the timestamp of the surveillance video. You can't even read it. Yeah. Like it, it's all wonky. Mm-hmm. So they don't know how long she was actually in there, and they don't know how long the door opened, but or stayed open. But, yep. She, and um, af- after they found that footage, they suggested she was on some kind of hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic drugs. Uh-huh. But despite being on four different medications for her bipolar disorder... There were no traces of any drugs or alcohol that could have contributed to her death. Nope. So there was also a theory that she was murdered and died as a result of drowning, but the autopsy report shows no evidence of trauma. To this day, no one knows how she was able to access the roof or climb into the water tank and shut the 20-pound lid by herself. Yeah, that was a big That's... thing, was how did she get in there? Like, because I guess... The, like the water the level between the 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 top of the tank where she entered and where the hatch is, and then the water level. There's. It's not. Po- it's not possible that she would be able to get back up after being in the tank and then moving it back on. Exactly. But is it possible that she like had it lifted up, kind of, and then when she went down, it just fell down? Possibly. Uh, maybe. I mean. Like she didn't. Maybe she didn't take it all the way off. Maybe she just like. You know, but like, like once like, you're... imagine it had a hinge on it, and she just like opened it towards the hinge, it like opened it back to where it didn't come completely off. Imagine she had it open like that, and then when she jumped in, she pulled it down with her, and then that's how it got closed. I don't know. I mean, it's it's strange. It's it's one of the stranger ones that I've ever encountered. It's definitely or... a chilling one. It, sure. it is by far. Okay, so next on my list is John Benet Ramsey. That is next on my list. Oh my gosh. Look, it's right here. I believe you. I know. So it's about time. Um this case if if somebody were to ask me what is if you had like a magical power to 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 close a case and know exactly what happened, which one would it be? It would be this one. Yes. I have to know what happened to uh, her. I, I need to, to know, know if it was her freaking brother. Don't say that. We'll get sued. He's apparently... Oh, yeah. Yeah, he apparently sues anybody who, like, puts it out there that he could have possibly done that. Well, I mean, so, he can't... Dude, you could sue me all you want. Please, you could have half of my nothing. No, no, don't sue anybody, okay? So, she was found dead in the basement of her family's home on December 26, 1996, after her mother, Patsy Ramsey, found a ransom note. She called the police and reported her daughter missing. The only people who had been in the house... At the time were the parents, John and Patsy Ramsey, and their son, Burke. Uh, uh, uh. We could say his
name. Oh, okay. As long as we're not saying Burke killed her, we're not saying that. True, we are not saying that because we, we don't have any proof. We think that, but we're not saying that. We're not, um, Burke. Don't worry. <laughs> so her body was found by John with duct tape across her mouth and a cord around her neck. The police then determined that the Ramsey house that they determined the Ramsey house to be a crime scene, which unfortunately was contaminated because at the time that she was reported missing. Nobody expected her to still be in the house. So there were people in and out of the house constantly, oh, yeah. like, searching mm-hmm. around and searching for her. So there's no way that it could be a clean crime scene because so many people just trampled through it. Um, her death was ruled a homicide, and the cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation by strangulation associ- associated with craniocerebral trauma. Sorry, I had to sound that one out for some reason. Which I guess is... Basically, Blunt she force was, trauma. Yeah, busted in the head and then strangled. So, lots of suspects, but no. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like no definitive. There was only a certain people in the house. Uh huh. You know, and it's. I mean, there's I, a I lot. I mean, I know they they did stuff where they you know said somebody could have gotten in the house from like the window or whatever, yeah. but they didn't find anything. To, they, I don't think they. I I, I don't want to dive too much into this story here because I do actually want to do an episode on this okay. case by itself. Okay. So that's why I kept my notes Stop. on this one short and sweet because I want to do a full-blown hour-long episode on John Benet Ramsey because the little girl has, you know, she deserves it. So next on your list. Next on my list. Well, so I guess I crossed that. That would have been my next, but we talked about it. So, this is a little long one that I'm going to have to read from because I don't know if many people have heard about this, but this one intrigued me as well. The Sodder Children Disappearance. I have it on my list. Do you really? It's not next, but it's on my list. Wow. Okay. This one intrigued me. So, I'm just, I'm going to read what happened and um, um, I'm not going to keep it super short and sweet. Well, you're going to... Kind of have to keep it somewhat short because we only have like an hour. So. That's, I mean, that's fine. I'll, I'll read fast. On the night before Christmas in 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, George and Jenny Sauter were asleep with nine of their children when a fire started in the house around one o'clock in the morning. George, Jeannie, and four of their children managed to escape. The remaining children, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Lois, 8-year-old Lewis, Lewis Eight-year-old Jenny and five-year-old Betty still remained in the house. Between the five of them, they shared two bedrooms located upstairs. George broke back in the house to save the rest of the children, but the staircase was on fire. When he went outside to retrieve his ladder, it was missing from its normal spot. Plus, both of his coal trucks, which he was going to use to stand on top of, were strangely not starting. Marion, one of the children who escaped Marianne. the fire, whatever, <laughs> ran to a neighbor's house to phone the fire department, but the operator did not pick up. So all kinds of weird shit just happening, like working against them. Yep. When another neighbor called the operator, when another neighbor called, the operator failed to pick up the phone again. That same neighbor actually drove to town and found the fire chief in person, F.J. Morris, and told him about the fire. However, even though the fire station was located a mere 2.5... This shit blows my fucking mind. What you're getting ready to say blows my mind. Even though the fire station was located a mere 2.5 miles away from the house, the firefighters didn't reach the solder home until 8 a.m., 
seven hours after the fire seven began. Seven hours to go 2.5 miles. You would think they live in D.C. or something. Good God. When they got there, the house was literally burnt to ash. Now, authorities sifted through the ash to try to find the remains of the missing five children, but nothing was found, and they were presumed dead due to the fire. Moore suggested that the fire was so hot that it literally cremated the children's bodies, including their bones. Nah. While that theory sounds reasonable, it is not entirely accurate, because even when flesh is burned away, bones are typically left behind. Not, like, completely bones left behind. No, but little fragments fragments and and stuff. Hey, we said the same word. Additionally, there was no smell of burning flesh reported during or after the fire. The cause of the fire was deemed to be bad wiring, and the five missing children were issued death certificates. Soon after the fire, George and Jeannie began began to suspect that their children were not dead, but instead kidnapped, and a fire was deliberately set as a diversion. In fact, George had the wiring checked earlier that fall by the power company, which had deemed the wiring in safe working order. While the fire was in progress, a woman came forward and said she saw all five of the missing children peering from a passing car window. Another woman who was staying at a Charleston hotel had saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said that she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. Yep. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of the Italian extraction. She said in a statement, I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and would not allow it. From the 1950s until Jenny Sodder's death in the late 1980s, the Sodder family maintained a billboard on State Route 16 with pictures of the five vanished children and offering a reward for information. The last known surviving Sodder child, Sylvia, still doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. To this day, they have never been found. And I have no idea what to think. It's it's mind-boggling. It's I have crazy. No idea what to think. Uh, it's just, I mean, I don't know. It's that's everything was just is just fucked up here. It's yeah. all fucked up. It it started that way and it ended that way. I mean, it's there's. Well, that's why it's unsolved. Because it's, we just don't know. We don't it's know what fucked happened. up. That's fucked up. Seven hours to get to a fire two miles away. I think other than the kids being missing, like they weren't their their remains weren't found in the in the ashes, and also you know they haven't they were never found like as alive people. That boggles my mind more than anything. Is oh like, yeah, it took the fire department seven hours to get there. Oh yeah, that's. I, I need to know. I need to know, too. I need to know. We need to call one F.J. Hooker, whatever his name was. <laughs> Morris. F.J. Morris. <laughs> He's a freaking hooker, anyway. Um. All right. So, my next mystery. When I tell you this shit, the first time I ever heard of it gave me, like, the heebie-jeebies. I'm not joking. It's the Watcher House. Don't have that. Okay. This one... Okay. So, in June of 2014, the Brodus family moved into their new home in Westfield, New Jersey. Three days after the closing of the sale, a letter arrived in their mailbox. It was addressed to the new owner, in quotes, and it was typed out. Like, not handwritten. It was just typed. The letter said, and I'm going to read the letter word for word, okay? Sure. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? 
Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Fucking creepy. That was the first letter. The letter also mentioned specifics about the Brodus family. You have children. I have seen them, the letter continued. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it agreed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call them and draw them to me. Bro, don't talk about my children, okay? At the, at the bottom of the letter, the author used a cursive font to sign The Watcher. The Brodus has contacted the people who sold them the house, who had lived there for 23 years, and never received a letter like that, except for once a few days before they moved out. And I couldn't find that letter. Like, they didn't say what was in that letter. They said they never felt watched and rarely even locked their doors at night. Crazy people. Shit. They went to the police and an investigation was opened. Two weeks later, still without having moved in, another letter came. The watcher asked, will the children sleep in the attic or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I will know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who was in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. Bruh. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> yeah, stop watching me. Several weeks later, after the family had put their plans to move in on hold, a third letter arrived simply asking, where have you gone? 657 Boulevard is missing you. It's a house, dude. Yeah. You're missing me. There was no digital trail, no fingerprints on the letters, nothing. They decided to sell the home and never look back, and the identity of the watcher is still unknown to this day. It's freaking creepy. Didn't we watch something? I don't remember. I could have sworn we watched something about that on TV. I don't know. That's freaking wild, man. So that, Like I said, heebie-jeebies. For sure. And creepies. This is the super creepies. All righty. Next up on my list, and this this one kind of has intrigued me for a very long time. All right. I'm growing intrigued. up, growing up in Philadelphia. Oh boy. Um, in West Philadelphia. And anybody from Philadelphia pretty much knows this this story here, this mystery. It is the death of the boy in the box. I do know that story, and I'm not from Philadelphia. Yes. Oh, on February 25th, 1957, a body of an unidentified boy was found in a box in an illegal dumping ground near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The boy was estimated to be around four to six years old, weighed about 30 pounds, and stood around three feet three inches tall. He was found naked but wrapped in a blanket. His hair was recently cut and his body was recently washed clean. There were small scars found on his chin, his groin, and his left ankle, some of which pointed that he went through some small medical procedure. He was found with blunt force trauma to the head, and that was determined to be the cause of death, and there were no witnesses. 
The body was found by a young man who was walking. This is what bothers me here. The body was found by a young man who was walking through the abandoned lot. Strangely, the man waited an entire day before contacting the police. And even a second man had previously found the boy's body, but never contacted the police because he did not want to get involved. Like, who doesn't want to get involved in a fucking child's murder or death? Like, Guilty people. Like, yes, exactly. Like, you're a drug addict, they don't care about that. Fucking homicide detective, they don't care about any of that. They just want to know who murdered yep. somebody. Absolutely. That's all they care about. Go back, solve, help solve the crime, and then go back and do your fucking drugs. You know? So with the, um, with the cold weather and delayed phone call, police were never able to ac- accurately estimate the time of the boy's death. In order to identify the boy, the body was kept in the morgue while visitors from 10 different states tried to look for identifiable marks to no avail. Police sent out over 400,000 flyers of the boy to police stations, post office, and courthouses all over the country. Even the American Medical Association sent out a description of the boy, but it led nowhere. The police compared the boy's footprints to hospitals in the area and even took fingerprints, but no records showed that the boy ever even existed. That's crazy. In 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the victim and added him into their database. Unfortunately, the boy has still never been identified, and the case still remains open. See, like, the fact that he's never been identified makes me think parents. Exactly. Because who, what parents would not uh, yes. report their children missing unless you were the reason they're missing? Exactly. It's got to be their parents, but we'll never know because we don't know who he is. Like, I think it's 100% their parents, like, if not... Maybe the father, and then the mother was too scared to say anything. Or the mother was killed, or, or vice you know, versa, the yeah. father was killed. I mean, it could be anything like it's that. Just, it's crazy, man. But when kids are involved in that shit, it's just, it's sad, man. It's a it's, very heartbreaking it's story. Absolutely terrible. Yep. They actually did a um, an episode of Law & Order SVU, and basically it was the boy in the box. It's, it's freaking wild, man. Yeah, I, I, I am familiar, not familiar, like I don't, you know. I've heard of that case, and I just, it, it breaks my heart. I don't really like to think about that one. So we'll just move on to the next one on my list, which is the Ketty Cabin Murders. Is that on your list? Wait a minute. He's looking through his paperwork. Please hold. <laughs> oh, boy. No, I don't think I have it. Okay, well, I'm going to get into it then. On April 12th of 1981... The Sharp family, along with some friends, went to sleep in cabin 28 at the Ketty Resort Lounge in Ketty, California. Say Ketty one more time. Ketty. <laughs> Sheila Sharp woke up to find her mother, Sue, brother Johnny, and a family friend, Dana Wingate, were murdered. Her 12-year-old sister, Tina, was missing from the cabin. Sheila actually managed to survive because she wasn't in the cabin that night. She spent the night at the next door, at the cabin next door with yep. a friend. Um, thankfully... Her brother, her younger brothers, Greg and Rick, and their friend, Justin Smart, keep that name in mind, mm-hmm. were found alive and safe in another room in the cabin. Tina's remains were eventually found by way of anonymous tip, uh, like 50 miles from the cabin on the third anniversary of the murders. Now, if it's an anonymous tip, that long after the murders, like, you know something. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know something. Absolutely. Bro. There were two suspects in the murders, Marty Smart, 
as in Justin Smart, mm-hmm. a survivor. And Bo uh, Bubidi. That's what I'm going to say. Bo Bubidi. Bubidi. Baba Booey. Marty was married to Marilyn Smart and father to Justin, one of the boys who survived the murders. Marty was known to be an abusive husband, and Sheila Sharp had just actually um, escaped an abusive marriage herself. It was thought that she was given Marilyn advice on how to escape her marriage, and when Marty found out about that, he went ballistic. Quotes. That is quoted. He went ballistic. So, it makes sense as to why she died. Some of her kids died. But the room that his son was in untouched. Not even harmed. Not a hair on their head. All them hmm. boys perfectly safe and alive. Uh, the only reason I could find that Bo was like included in you know question or whatever is because he's an ex-con and he was actually supposedly the person that got Marty involved in the drug business. So like they just put two and two together because the the authorities didn't think that only one person could have done yeah. the damage that was done. Um, after questioning both men, the investigation pretty much stopped. Evidence, people say that evidence went unnoticed and people of interest were never even questioned. Mm-hmm. Happens a lot. And that's it. No one's ever been convicted of the crimes. I wonder if they think it was like some kind of drug related Either that, I mean, I feel like Marty did it. I mean, I'm... That's, yeah, that's... It seems like a given because... Marty don't sue us. I don't even know if he's still alive. Who cares? Hmm. Anyways. Interesting. Your next story. My next mystery. Mystery. And it's a short one. And this one I found pretty freaking weird because it does not involve people. And it is the mystery at Overtone Bridge. I have that one. Are you and that's serious? That's exactly the same reason I did it. This too. is freaking weird. Yes. So, in Scotland, there's a bridge called the Overtone Bridge that seems to call dogs to jump to their death. Mm-hmm. Dogs commit suicide at this bridge. Since the early 60s, over 50 canines have perished and hundreds more have leapt off the bridge, but survived with some of them actually returning for a second leap onto the jagged rocks 50 feet below. Mm-hmm. The Scottish SPCA has sent representatives to investigate, but with no luck. In terms of scientific truth, it is debatable that dogs are capable of forming a suicide attempt. Yet something is luring these dogs to jump off of the bridge Mostly from the same spot and always on sunny, dry days. Yep. So weird. It's, it is, uh, many theories have conspired, including that the bridge is haunted. A small animal is marking the area with an irresistible scent. Like, yeah, so irresistible, I'm going to kill myself. Or a sound exists below the bridge that only dogs can hear. But whatever is causing this phenomenon, dog owners crossing on this bridge would be wise to take extra caution and keep their dogs on leashes. I just... It's it's freaking... It's, it's weird, so man. It's so strange. Like, I, I just picture walking down the street and dogs like running up there, wee, yeah. just like flopping off the fucking bridge. I mean, it's got to be one of those things <laughs> like, you know, the smell. Maybe there's a smell that they just have to get to or maybe it's the sound that we can't hear that they can. Yeah, like a but, high-pitched... Frequency. It's so weird, it's, and it's not solved. So therefore, yes, it landed on our unsolved mysteries. It's was, fucking weird, man. 
Don't we're not taking our dog to Scotland. Oh no, never. Sure. Only if we're even taking our souls to Scotland. No, I don't plan to. I don't have a kilt. Mm-mm. Me either. I wouldn't wear one. I'm a chick. Yeah. I mean, what would I wear? It doesn't matter. It pants. don't matter. It don't matter. Yeah, I'll wear pants and you wear the kilt. So my next uh, mystery is the lost colony of Roanoke. I was going to do that one, but I didn't. Only because I figured you did. Well, it's... Or you would. It boggles my mind. Yes. So, in 1587, an English colonial governor named John White led a group of British folks to found an English colony over here in America. America. Uh, they settled on Roanoke Island, which is I actually... I thought it was Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Um, they settled on Roanoke Island, which is actually like a part of the Outer Banks, what is now the Outer Banks. Mm-hmm. And when the rations ran low, White left to get more supplies. Uh, he came back about three years later and found that the colony found the colony was completely abandoned. All of the houses and military constructions that they had built. Hold on. He went out to get supplies. Well, because he came from they came from uh like England area. Oh so, okay. So he was on a boat. It's not like he just got on an airplane and flew. No, yeah. I mean it was in the fifteen hundred. I didn't know you had east. gone back to the Yeah. So um where was I? Uh the all of the houses and military constructions that they had built had been dismantled carefully. Like, not, like, torn down and, like, demolished. Somebody carefully, like, carefully re- yes. removed them. Yep. Before he had left the colony to go get the supplies, he instructed his people to carve a cross into a nearby tree if they were ever taken by force. No cross was found on any of the trees nearby, but the word Croatoan was carved into a post. The word Croatoan was the name of a Native American tribe that had allied with the English settlers, so White just assumed that the colonists had moved to the Croatoan island. They didn't. Not there. Nobody knows where they are, where they went. They did, like, um, recent, not recent, like right now, but, like, recent uh, investigations in the land. They said that there could have been a massacre there, but it would have been um, colonists that settled there earlier, before the the, mm. the Croatoan uh, people did so these people that that came to Roanoke just disappeared like legit disappeared like no DNA was ever found from like the descendants of of the people that would mm-hmm. of the of the descendants the descendants of the people who are alive now right so no DNA was found to match the descendants of the people who came to Roanoke mm-hmm. gotcha so we don't know where they are, where they went. I mean, they're dead now, obviously, because it was almost sixteen hundred. But where'd they go? Where'd they go? Nobody knows. No, no. Nobody knows. All right. Up next on my list is the Jameson family disappearance. I almost did that. Did one. you really? Yes, because the video from that I watched of them, freaky. So, but I didn't. So on October 8th, 2009, the Jameson family, 44-year-old Bobby Dale, 40-year-old Sherry Lynn Leanne, Leanne? Leanne. Leanne. And their six-year-old daughter, Madison Stormy Star, which a cool name, were seen for the last time before vanishing without a trace. The family who lived in Eufaula, Eufaula? Am I saying that right? I don't know. I don't live there. You follow Oklahoma was last seen by a man who lived in the mountains in southeastern Oklahoma. However, the witnesses claimed that he only I'm sorry. However, the witness claimed that he only saw the family and no one else in that area during the time. 
The Jamesons, who were there to view a 40-acre plot of land that they were looking to purchase. They were looking to live in a shipping container that they had already been living in on their plot of land in Eufolia. On October 16, eight days after the Jamesons were last seen alive, the first major discovery in the case occurred. Hunters at a remote location in the woods, about a quarter mile away from the last spot the Jamesons were seen, discovered the Jamesons' abandoned truck, which was still locked. Inside the truck, investigators found Bobby's wallet, Sherry Lynn's purse, jackets, and the GPS, and Bobby's cell phone. They found $32,000 in cash in a bank bag and the Jameson's pet dog, Maisie, who was incredibly malnourished but still alive. Bobby's cell phone had a picture of Madison, and it was believed to have been taken the day before they disappeared. I'm missing something. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There was actually, they looked into the truck and they found no evidence of any kind of struggle. Former Sheriff Bochamp, 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 Bochamp. <laughs> the sheriff remarked, I think they were forced to stop and got out of the truck to meet with someone they recognized. And I think they either left willingly or by force. Oh, obviously, that's your only two freaking options, Captain Fucking, I'm sorry, Sheriff Obvious. The GPS unit in the truck indicated the family had been further up a nearby hill prior to the location where the truck and belongings were found. Investigators followed the coordinates and found footprints. One day later, on October 17th, 300 people, including authorities and volunteers, staged a large-scale air and ground search party, but unfortunately, any leads went cold and a search for the Jamesons were cut off, called off. On November 16th, 2013, hunters were scouting for deer, hunters who were scouting for deer uh, locations, when they found partial skeletal remains of three bodies, two adults and one child. The remains were found less than three miles from where the Jameson family had parked their truck four years earlier. The search uncovered shoes, bits of clothing, adult teeth, an adult arm, and a leg bone, and bone fragments. The bones would eventually be confirmed as the missing Jameson family. However, no cause of death was determined, and the circumstances surrounding their disappearance still remain unknown. Uh, and they had the video um, after the story came out, and it was just them, like, it was surveillance video from, I guess, their land, where they were just walking back and forth between their house and their truck, like, mm -hmm. loading their truck up. And it's like, they're in a trance. Yeah. Like, they don't... They're just spaced out. Like, not thinking, not not being people. They're just kind of there. Weird fucking case. Weird. Weird, weird. Um, my next one is the murder of Betty Shanks. Not here. I actually never heard about it until I did some digging on Strangest Mysteries and found it. So, I wanted to... Bring it out. Put it out there for everybody else. Do it. Put it out there, babe. On September 19th, 1952, 22-year-old Betty Shanks got off the train at Days Road Terminus in Grange, which is a suburb in Brisbane, Queensland. I don't think that's how they pronounce it in Australia. Queensland. Queensland? Queen I, I, I'm, I'm not there. We need to ask your sister. Lisa Sandler, can you please fact check? <laughs> um, she was attending classes at the University of Queensland. And after she got off the train, started her short walk home. 
However, she would never arrive. Her violently beaten body was found on the corner of Carberry and Thomas Streets in the garden of a house the next morning at 5.35 a.m. by a policeman who lived nearby. At the time, it became one of Queensland's most notorious investigations ever. Despite many theories, a suspect was never convicted and her murder is still unsolved. There are many books written by authors speculating who did it, and many have come forward and confessed, but all of them have been proven to be false. I do not understand why people will falsely admit to crimes they didn't commit. It's, that, that always boggled my mind. I will, I don't... I think they have something wrong with them because it's... I, I, I just, I don't know. It's, I will never understand it. It's... You want attention, fine, but that is the dumbest way to go about getting it. And landing yourself in prison for the rest of your life, that's fucking stupid. Unreal. Anyways, as of today, there is still a $50,000 Australian reward for any information on her murder. Hmm. Strange. Wish I knew. Me too. Alrighty. Next up on my list is the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, boy. So, everybody knows Jimmy Hoffa. He was the Teamsters president from 1958 to 1971. I heard he's buried under the Giants. That's what everybody infield, says. Uh, end zone, infield. <laughs> so, at the time, 90% of U.S. transportation was controlled by the Teamsters, who was con- which was controlled by Hoffa. So, he had this big relation with the mob. You know, the mob was able to take loans out of the Teamsters pension funds and funneled into Las Vegas casinos and illegal activities, you know. But despite his connection to the mob, Hoffa was loved by the Teamsters, and he was known for increasing benefits and wages for workers. Through the 40s and 50s, Hoffa was able to have a good relation with the mob until he started a 13-year prison sentence in 1967 for crimes including bribery, jury tampering, and mail fraud. He was then pardoned by President Nixon in 1971, as long as he abstained from any union involvement until 1980. This would lead to Hoffa's downfall. Hoff, basically, Hoffa went missing. Nobody knows what happened to him. He was never found. Everybody thinks it was mob-related. Everybody thinks he's either buried under Giant Stadium. Uh-huh. He was chopped up and, you know, fed to the fishes. Uh-huh. It's, just, it's just one of them things that uh, even... The FBI even investigated, you know, mafia members who they thought were involved. And, um, you know, they were generally unwilling to cooperate, which... Really? E- even in private, which, I mean, I, of course, you don't want to get fucking whacked, so... No. You're a mobster, don't talk. What Jimmy he's Hoffa, alive? He's not alive. I'm sure he would have came forward like, yo, fellas, I'm here. Unless it's, he really pissed somebody off and wanted yeah. to stay hidden until he died naturally. Unreal. Which, I wonder when he was born. Now we'll find out later. Okay, so my next one's weird. (laughs) It's the severed feet mystery. It's fucking weird. (laughs) Okay, that's... Um, As somebody who hates feet, uh, this is giving me the heat. Going around chopping niggas' feet off. Different kind of heebie-jeebies. So, in 2007, a girl was walking along a beach in British Columbia when she found a sneaker that had washed up on shore. To her horror, she found that a human foot was inside. Since then, a number of severed feet have washed ashore. <clears throat> the feet have been connected to five men, one woman, and three of unknown sex. Throughout the years, the case still remains a mystery with many theories floating around the general public and the media as to who the feet belong to. 
The Vancouver police managed to identify one foot in 2008, matching its DNA to a man who was described as suicidal. The authorities were then able to match two other feet to a woman who was also believed to have committed suicide. Because of these findings, many speculate that the feet belonged to those who jumped off a bridge to their deaths. However, because of the rarity of only feet and no other body parts showing up, some believe that they were those of the victims of the tsunami in 2004, since the make of the shoes had all been manufactured before 2004. Whatever the source these feet are coming from, they have left the world and authorities stumped. That's wild. Get it? Just stumped. Stumped. Ah, <laughs> giggity. Something's um, afoot here. <laughs> so, the only other theory I've heard is that it's like um, either like a morgue or some kind of like um, death, like body farm, and and somehow the body parts got misplaced. I don't know, man. I don't it's... know. It's like I said. It's weird. It's really weird. That's weird. Feet. Could you imagine <laughs> just feet just ra- washing up on shore That's and crazy. walking along the beach? So That's weird. wild. Unreal. <sighs> All right. Next up on my list would be the escape from Alcatraz. Uh, okay. I've I've always loved this story. I watch the show, the things anytime it comes on. So everybody pretty much knows about this story. Uh, President Mates, um, Clarence Anglin, his brother John Anglin, Alan West, and Frank Morris uh, were all prisoners in Alcatraz, which is formerly a you know military base. Um, yeah, I mean they basically hatched this plan to escape from prison, where you know they they dug holes in the wall and the ceiling and found a way out, and they fabricated dummies to put in their beds. Yep. Um, you know, and uh, it was, you know, their plan to escape, and it, it freaking worked, man. I mean, 7 o'clock in the morning, the bell went off, and prisoners got up, and the guards noticed there were still a couple prisoners in their bed, and one of the guards went over to Morris's cell, I believe, and went to push his head to get him up, and the head just rolled right out of the yep. bed, and he's like... <laughs> Something ain't freaking right here, fellas. <laughs> Something is not right here. And actually, to this day, they still have that dummy head, and it bores the damage that resulted in it falling out of that prison bed. So anyway, they, uh, you know, the guards had found the hole in the ceiling. They found the footprints on the roof, footprints on the ground near the pipe that they climbed down. The FBI joined the case. The Coast Guard joined the case. Um... You know, they had a makeshift raft that they yep. had made out of uh, raincoats and yep. stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody's saying that there's no way that they survived escaping. But to this day, like, the raft has never been found. Uh, their articles of clothing never been found. Nothing has ever been found. I mean, I, th- I think a couple things they may have found that maybe fell in the water. I'm not 100. I can't remember. But um, but it's just, it's a mystery. I feel like and- I remember seeing something. About because wasn't were two of them brothers? Yes, and they, one like, of them said that he was still alive and that his brother died or something. Right? No, the thing I remember seeing is that they had like come to a parents or somebody's funeral like dressed as women, so they could pay their respects but not be seen as yeah the prisoners. I think I remember reading about that or seeing it's, that somewhere. It's wild, but I think they made it. I, I I, really do think they made it and just went on to live their best life until they died. 
I don't know. I don't know. That's boom, why boom, it's unsolved. Well, the last one on my list is the unexplained Phoenix Lights. On March Ooh. 13th, 1997, a string of five lights in a V formation appeared in the sky above Phoenix, Arizona, obviously. The National UFO Reporting Center reported that the first call about the lights came in at around 8.16 p.m. from a retired police officer in Paulden, Arizona, which is about two hours north of Phoenix. After that, the, the National UFO Reporting Center began to receive a slew of calls south of Paulden, suggesting that the lights were moving in a southeastern direction. Allegedly, there were over 700 witnesses who had seen the lights, including pilots, police officers, yep. and military officials who lit up the National UFO Reporting Center's switchboard demanding explanations. You know, coming from pilots, police officers, and military officials, like... Something... Something This is legit. There. Like, this is legit. The, those are the people who will lie to you, like, no, nothing's going on. But if they're calling you and telling you, I'm seeing this yeah. shit, something's going on. Um, some described the lights as orbs. Others said they were triangles. However, a large number of witnesses described the lights as part of a singular massive craft that made no noise. Around 10 p.m., a second set of as many as nine lights appeared in the sky. A laser printer technician, Dana Valentine, claimed to have witnessed the craft from his yard in Phoenix. You could, we could see the outline of the mass behind the lights, but you couldn't actually see the mass, he reported. It was more like a gray distortion of the night sky, wavy. I don't know exactly what it was. But I do know it's not a technology the public has ever has heard before. Air traffic controllers could not see the lights on the radar, despite seeing them in the sky with their own eyes. Frances Barwood, the 1997 Phoenix City Councilwoman who launched an investigation into the event, said that of the over 700 witnesses she interviewed, the government never interviewed even one. To this day, the unexplained Phoenix lights remain a mystery. It's wild, man. Last on my list here is the strange disappearance of D.B. Cooper. Oh. Love this story. Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, a man identified as Daniel Cooper bought a $20 one-way ticket on Northwest Airlines on Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. He carried a briefcase and a brown paper bag. As the flight took off, he ordered a bourbon and soda from the flight attendant. After the plane was airborne... He handed the attendant a note. At first, she put it in her pocket without looking at it, but then Cooper told her, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Cooper then told her the bomb was in his briefcase and asked her to sit next to him. Cooper nah. told, <laughs> Yeah, right now, nah, bro. Cooper told the flight attendant to write down everything he was saying and take it to the captain. The note said, I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash, exclusively in $20 bills, put in a knapsack. Two parachutes and two front parachutes. Two back parachutes, two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel the plane. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. You got me, Sherry? <laughs> FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks and Seattle police obtained the parachutes from a local skydiving school. When Cooper claimed his demands were met, he allowed all passengers and some of the crew to exit the airplane. Cooper told the remaining crew to refuel the plane and chart a course for Mexico City while staying below 10,000 feet. During the flight, Car Cooper put on a pair of dark wraparound sunglasses, which would make it into the official sketch and become famous with anyone investigating the case. Yep. 
little after 8 p.m., somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, Cooper jumped out of the rear door of the plane with two of the parachutes and the money. He was never seen again. Despite an expansive, expansive manhunt for over 45 years of searching, no conclusions have been made to the man's identity or his fate after he jumped. It is called one of the greatest cold cases ever in FBI and UF, U.S. history. Now, I know that they said that they had found some money, uh-huh. like, in the area where he, you know, jumped or whatever. Yep. But maybe he got rid of some of it just to so they thought, he, you know, to yeah. throw them off. But he, he's another one. I think he survived and he freaking made well, out. Well, if he didn't survive, they would have found his body. They would have found so his body. I mean, but where did he fucking, nobody knows where he went, like. He like, ditched them glasses and they did not <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Can't tell who I am with these freaking dark wraparound glasses that's no like, longer on my like face. Clark Kent puts on the, or he wears the glasses and you don't know he's actually Superman. Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know. Well, this was fun. Yeah, it was I, fun. This I, was a fun list to do. I enjoyed it. Maybe we got to do more more lists like this. I, I like it. Okay. Um. So that's that's our show for the night. And we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, because I enjoyed it. We could have gone on and done this for the next two hours, probably. Yes, we could have. But we were limited on time. Yep. So, um, you know the drill. You know the drill, yo. On Facebook, the Not Your Normal Horror podcast group. We're both admins. We'll let you in. We'll let you in. Just give um, a little rap a tap tap on the door. There, we're on Instagram, Not Your Normal Horror. And. The email is notyournormalhorrorpodcast at gmail.com. So if we missed any of your favorite mysteries, let us know and let us know what you thought. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye.